And as a reminder, uh, we're, at, we're at intermission time with the book week. I'm still thinking in Esther and still thinking in Esther, but it's really Advent season. So we're taking the break. Uh, I think that's between five and six. Get some sort of context for the passage itself. Because this we're, we want Christmas to be a happy time already. It, it seems like we've heard a couple of passages that uh, they're not necessarily conjuring up happy feelings in us. This really is good news, and we'll cover more of that. But this is a the setting of this is the uh, Jesus was with his disciples. They apparently were like walking by Herod's temple, and these massive stones that the temple are made out of. One it, it, and it become it's a beautiful structure. One of, the, one of the disciples said something apparently about the, uh, how magnificent these, uh, the building is and these stones. And with that, Jesus says, I tell you, there will not be one stone standing upon the other uh, when the Son of Man comes. And so the, he's predicting a destruction of Jerusalem. Um, he's also saying that there, are, that, that there will be a judgment coming. And then he's comparing it to the days like Noah. So, and also in this, it's like Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives. So I'm assuming they pass by this and then the disciples are asking, as they've gotten further along, they're asking him, what will be a sign of these things to come? And when will it happen? And so he's in the middle of addressing this and he's been at it for a while and we're entering in in verse 36. But I would encourage you to read all of 24 to kind of get more of the picture of that when you have time. Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll jump into this. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at expecting the unexpected. This is what Advent is about. Advent is a season of waiting and watching. Our Advent readings help us to go back in time and look with anticipation for the coming Messiah. But at the same time, on this side of the cross, we have Jesus among us, and we anticipate his coming again to establish his kingdom in full. So we, we do, we're looking back, but we're also looking forward. And our text today may seem rather pessimistic, but it should, we should find hope for the elect as we anticipate his return. Our hope is in the fulfillment of Jesus' promises to come again to gather his people from the four winds of the world and then to set all things right. So in this passage, because Jesus is faithful to keep his promises, we must live in diligent expectation of his return, staying awake, guarding ourselves, and serving him in this earthly life. So we need to stay awake, we need to guard, our, guard ourselves, and we need to serve him. Have you ever watched a movie or whatever, even a TV show, you have a different perspective than the character on the screen, and you can tell what's happening, though they can't. And you can see both 
you, you, perhaps it's another, it's, a, it's another character who's going to attack this character or what have you. You, you got the whole picture. You're prepared. You can see it. You see it before it happens. Yet, the main character is coming into the, into the contact with this one who's, whatever, going to rob them uh, or what have you. And they, they get scared and they jump. And you jump too. Okay, this is, we know it's going to happen. But we don't know when. And we don't know how exactly it's going to look. This is kind of the setting for Christ's return. Verse 33, which we didn't read, that was above what we read. But 33 says that you will know. You will know these things. You will, you will know the end is near when these things take place. However, you will not know the day or the hour. So there are, there are things that are going to happen that are going to tell you we are in the last days. And so we've been in the last days since Christ ascended. So this is how we would look at last days. And there's, there's conversation throughout the Bible about the last day. Well, these are last days. This is the last event that's going to happen before Christ's return and sets all things right. It's the church time. This is that ordinary season we've been in. So it, it, it reminds us of this long time that the church age takes place. But when will Christ return? And he says that he doesn't even know when, when he will return, but only the Father. I one time, um, it wasn't Advent, but I one time I had a passage like this to preach, and there was a well-known and, and broadly distributed, uh, I, don't, I don't know who the guy was, but the world was supposed to end like yesterday, and I'm preaching the next day. Um, we, and and, and y'all been around a while, you've, you've heard people proclaiming they know this day or the hour, and they have discerned the signs of the time. Well, simply, that's just not any time that anybody tells you that, no matter how plausible their argument might be, what you know is they don't know. Because Jesus said he doesn't know. So if he doesn't know, chances are good. You know, Billy Bob from some holler is not going to know the answers. He hasn't really discerned the time. But perhaps he's going to make some money as he sells you T-shirts or something. So this is, it's, it's expected in one way, we know it's going to happen, but there's this kind of total unexpected way that it comes. So Jesus comes through as in this passage. He talks about what is totally unexpected. He talks about coming earlier than expected, and then he talks about coming later than expected. So that's how we're going to look at this. So let's, let's look, beginning in 36. It says, but concerning that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. So in, in the days of Noah, Noah preached for repentance. Yet, though he preached, and he preached, and, he, and, and you know, it took like forever to build this ark. And... So just as an aside, if you are um, shy about presenting your faith in places of work or out in public settings, um, and you're worried about the grief you might experience if you do so, 
just remember Noah. Noah's building this ark. Like this, this project went on forever. He just had to be like this crazy guy down at the end of the block doing his own thing that nobody believed. Like nobody believed him. And he would preach. And he would preach for repentance. And he would say, there's going to be a flood coming. They don't, I don't know what you mean about a flood. Don't know about this rain you're talking about. This makes no sense to me. Well, they were as clueless as your co-workers, as your friends, as your people around the holiday table sometimes, on your family. But they, they needed to know. So Noah's preaching. They're going about normal things. Noah's preaching. Noah's building his ark. In our day, they're doing normal things. Like, you know, yes, they're eating and drinking. They're playing basketball. They're going to school. They're running kids uh, to soccer matches. They're doing all those normal things. But it's only Noah and his family that were saved. When Noah entered the ark, it was God's hand that shuts the door. Then the unbelieving people perished. All those who made fun of him, all those who ridiculed him, they perished. This is, and this is not, they perished because they made fun of him. They perished because they did not believe. So as it was in the days of Noah, this conveys three things I want us to get. Uh, people were going about their normal lives. That's, that's one. And then it was uh, an unbelieving world because it was only Noah and his family. A total of eight people that were saved in total. And though the gospel continues to spread and the church, um, you know, Satan will not thwart the church. So there, there is hope in that. But we know in the West that the the gospel has been diminishing. It's challenging to find much of a crowd in any church. The expectation that we fling open the doors and people are just rushing in, it's just not realistic. This is, this is the time we live in. I think that I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm, I'm an optimistic guy. Um, I don't think that. I know that. I always have been. I would think, and, I, and, I, and this stands to reason, the gospel comes to bear in this city. The clear, pro, proclaimed, believed gospel. Lives are changed, and now we have even examples. We have, we have the proof of scripture. We have the Holy Spirit among us. Then we have changed lives to point to. My concept is, okay, there ought to be a pocket in this city that's changed. I've heard stories in places where Young Life goes into a high school where there's a lot of craziness going on, and after a matter of months, the complexion of the school has changed. It's not that everybody became a believer, but a lot of people, maybe a lot of believers, maybe a lot of people became believers, and the complexion of the school has changed. I would think gospel comes to bear, spreads from the city to, the, to go out from the city, and then you can have a changed city, you can have a changed county, you can have a changed state, you can have a changed nation. Now, in all of my optimism, I really like that story. And it's one we still strive for, except I do think it's missing the biblical point. When Christ returns, I think it will be like in the days of Noah, where it was a largely unbelieving world. There is a thought because the gospel is going to be preached to all 
um, nations. And then some people would say that's already happened, and then there were these un, un, uh, unreached people groups. And so then we know in this case, in the technical side, it hasn't. And so when it does, when the gospel's gone everywhere, then the Lord will come back. And then there's also the thought, very optimistic thought, that when the whole world essentially con is converted, then the Lord will come back. I think the Lord's going to come back as it was in the days of Noah. I think the idea that, he, that, that he's coming to a largely unbelieving world is really there. Which brings us to the third thing I want to see about in the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, this was not good news. Though Noah preached good news, and there's good news in it because through the ark, the, the uh, family of Noah was saved. And the lineage of, from Genesis 3.15, which we continue to come back to, that li two lines, the line was still continuing because everybody else was wiped out and this line for the Messiah, the promised Messiah, was able to continue. So there is good news in it, but what's the rest of the story? It's not all good news, is it? Only eight People were saved. The waters of Noah's day came in judgment. And I think like in the days of Noah, when Christ returns, Christ will come also in judgment. 39 says, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. These are hard words. They were unaware of the pending flood until it swept them away. The world will continue to eat and drink and be merry. It will continue to look, look grossly different than God's intention for human flourishing. Jesus spent large portions of this chapter explaining what things would be happening in these last days. How the false prophets would come. How false messages would go out. How false gospels would go out. But he wasn't alone. Jesus said these things. That ought to be good enough. We could close the book there. But Paul said these things. Peter said these things. Jude said these things. They all warned to guard yourself against the false teachers and the things that would happen in the last days. This concept that um, we, we can be led astray by simply gradually changing the gospel. And we've been over this umpteen times how the devil will use bits and pieces of truth. He'll use bits and pieces even of scripture. And then he twists it to some degree. Did the Lord really say this? The, the, I didn't, and, and sometimes people are leading astray, I think, even out of ignorance. I don't think it's always deliberate. I think sometimes it's out of ignorance. But, it's, but all these writers warned of this to happen. I think it is happening in our midst. When that happens, those in Noah's day, it'll be like those in Jesus' day, in the return, in, as in the days of Noah. These, these people will have been swept away largely unbelieving, unrepenting, and unprepared to meet their creator. J.C. Ryle says, and this is where I have to check my 
positive attitude. J.C. Ryle, a, a, a former Anglican bishop, he said that upon Christ's return that people won't be converted, but millions of professing Christians will be found thoughtless, unbelieving, godless, Christless, worldly, and unfit to meet their judge. Like it was in the days of Noah. I, so, so, so I've turned this, I know it was a negative passage, and now I'm turning it so positive. I, I want us to feel the gravity of this reality, though. And I think for us, in this Advent season, we need to be preparing for his return by, yes, knowing the gospel ourselves, guarding against false teaching, and then helping others do the same. This is that serving him piece. He, he gave us our instructions for serving. We are to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. This return of Christ will come in a totally, and it will be totally unexpected. No one will know the day or the hour, including Jesus himself, but we know it will happen. We have, we have that perspective. We know it's going to happen. But for some, it will come earlier than expected. So look with me in verse 40. It says, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know the hour on what day your Lord is coming. Now, this is not about the rapture, um, which you may have expected or heard. This is about separation. Right now, Jesus says that the wheat and the chaff are together. The wheat and the tares are together. And that's, he's talking about the people in the church. So those, that's the true believers and those that are professing uh, believers, pro pro the true Christians and the professing Christians. Those that J Jesus himself, those that J.C. Ryle, that quote talked about, but those that Jesus himself talks about later in verse, I mean, chapter 25, when it gets near the end, and they're like, Lord, Lord, we did all these things. And he says, away from me, I never knew you. So, so now we have to understand they're together in the church, but they're, they're together everywhere. We're together in the workplace. We're together in, at the dinner table. We're together out on the foot, at the football games, in the classroom, and in the city, and in the country. But when Jesus comes in judgment, they will no longer dwell together. This will be a separation, and they will be separated eternally. Husbands from wives, children from parents, workers in the field, those in the classroom, parishioners from pastors, and on it goes. So are the ones that are taken, are they taken up to meet Jesus in the air as he returns? Or will the ones who are taken, are they taken for judgment? I think it's the latter. I think they are taken for judgment. The key is the separation of the two. There will be no time for preparing. And it can happen at any moment. Now, I, you know, I know I'm not that unique, so your family surely is a bit like mine in that there will be people who know you believe in Jesus, that you go to church. They may think you're even crazy fanatical because you do the things you do. But they don't need that just yet. There's something in them that's going to wait. They're just going to wait. 
Because we can read about the deathbed conversions, and maybe, maybe you need that. I don't need that yet. Well, there are two realities. When Jesus comes, there's no time. There's no time. I mean, there is no time. So if the person is alive, we need to be having conversations because there needs to be a clarity in their thinking happening now and not putting it off. Now, one of the motivations for Christ's return and and seeing that it's coming soon, it should charge us to evangelize those who are lost. Well, and and I'm, I'm not taking away from that. I think that's true. But I think if you're alive, then you ought to be charged for evangelism for those who are lost right now. And if you have lived anything like me, and most of you haven't, and I'll thank the Lord for that, and I do. But I've come near death, I don't know how many times. Too many, Becky would say. Well, maybe what pit pill in the day, she might say not quite enough. But it's been, I, I, I have faced death multiple times, and I realize that, you know, we may not make it home for me. I, every time we talk about the Lord's coming, I tell you this, that you may not make it home from here. We assume we will. You know, the Bible even teaches us to say, you know, not that I'll see you tomorrow, but Lord willing, I will see you tomorrow. That we trust him with tomorrow. We don't trust ourselves. But, like, how often do we do that? And yet, you know, we're, we're encouraged to make plans, and we do make plans. And we know this will happen on this day, and that day, and that day. But are we really placing ourselves in his mercy and resting in him to say, Lord willing, these things will happen. So Christ could come before I'm finished with this message, and I hope he does. But if our next 20 minutes will be like our last 20 minutes, my, my chance, I'm thinking maybe he's not. But that doesn't say about our destiny, about what's going to happen to us. So knowing that if your family members, your friends, if they're just sitting around waiting until things get worse, they may not have tomorrow. They're, we need to have a sense of urgency. We, now, where this turns a little more optimistic, and we're way past that, actually, and as you read the entire chapter, I want to point out that verse 8 is kind of your turning point. Because there's no time for preparing, and this is happening in a moment's notice, I want us to prepare our hearts during this Advent season, not because of this pessimistic message, but we should be thrilled for Christ's return. This should be very optimistic. Verse 8 says that these things of the last days, the famines, the wars, the rumors of wars, all that, they are but the beginning of the birth pains. So these are not pains of death, but these are pains of birth. There is something greater to come. So in the moment it may be not pleasant, but it's giving birth to something new. So we want to embrace that something new. Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So in in this, as Christ the King has come, his kingdom has come. It's that already, but not yet. And so we have had a foretaste of what it's to be. We get a foretaste. We will have a foretaste here in just a little bit of what it's to be as we have this meal in the heavenlies. But when he comes, all those foretastes, will become our reality. 
So we anxiously await the renewal of all things where there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more hurting, there will be no more sadness or loneliness or brokenness. But all things will be made new. And sin and the effects of sin will be no more. This is what we long for now. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So Jesus' return will be totally unexpected. For some, it's going to come earlier than they expect. But then there will be those who come later than they expect. And so verse 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the third time we've heard essentially that same line. Now, it's pretty weird to me when Jesus compares himself to a thief in any way, um, because there is nothing nefarious in Jesus at all. And, of course, that's not what he's saying. But like a thief comes without announcing his coming, when he comes when you don't expect it, this is what Jesus is comparing himself to. There is something more than the unexpected nature of Christ's return, though, that I want you to see from this example of the thief. When you go away from home, you ever leave lights on inside? You lock your doors. Do you set an alarm if your house had one? Why do you do those things? Well, it's because you value what is inside. You value what's inside. You are the one who has worked for those things, and they have value to you. You also know that they may have value to the thief, and therefore you want to protect your stuff. I think it's your duty. I think it's a stewardship thing that you protect your stuff. I think that's a good thing. If someone were to ask you for something you have, you're probably like me and you're willing to loan. But if someone wanted to take it, no matter how minuscule it is, that becomes a whole different story. So it's a stewardship thing. But shouldn't we be as concerned about our own souls or those whom we love as we are the stuff that's in our house? That stuff that we want to protect. That stuff that means something to us, so we proactively guard against the thief. Luke 9.25 says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? As you prepare yourself for Christ's return this Advent season, ask him to show you where you may be clinging to the world too tightly. And Listen for his response. Jesus bought you with a price, the price of his own blood. You are valuable to Jesus. How will he find you when he returns? What is it that you will be doing? The image of the thief reminds us to be watchful. Just as we watch for the thief, let us watch for the coming of the king. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Will you be ready? Are you keeping watch? May the Lord grant you the grace to prepare and order your life so that when our Savior returns for us in glory, he may find you watching and waiting. In the name of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit.